Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste explode. And uh, what a night for it. Uh, if you have a dog tonight, you have a very scared dog tonight. Mm, or or uh, or cats, cats as well. We're recording this on uh, the eve of July 4th. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit loud. Uh, the, the fireworks seem to have, uh, subsided, so it probably won't affect our audio very much, but you never know. There's always that one random boom in the middle of the night. Um, anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I don't have a cute nickname. Cool. And, uh, this time... One. <laughs> no, 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 you're fine, you're fine. And this time, on Critically Acclaimed, we got a bit of catching up to do, because we missed last week. We are going to be reviewing the new and new-ish releases, Minions, The Rise of Gru, Marcel, The Shell with Shoes On, The Princess, Elvis, The Black Phone, Mr. Malcolm's List, The Forgiven, Flux Gourmet, and Accepted. It's a lot of movies. It is. Between, between the two of us, we got a lot. Uh, and it is two weeks worth of movies as well. Indeed. So. Indeed. And, and and unfortunately, this is one of those weeks where we didn't see a lot of the same movies. So mm-hmm. we'll be doing uh, 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 a lot of the heavy lifting on some of those films ourselves. But let's start with the movie that was the big release of this weekend. And You don't want to you don't want to start in the past? No. The past the past is back? the past is dead with me. <laughs> the past is the dead. Past is, the past is gone. The future hasn't happened yet. There is nothing but the eternal present. There is nothing but Minions. Um, <laughs> the Minions have a new movie. It's called Minions The Rise of Gru. Uh, you may recall the Minions are uh, little, little orange fellas in, in a lot of denim and goggles. No, they're, they're, they're yellow. They're yellow. They're like banana Did yellow. I just say orange? You said they're orange. Well, um, wow, that is ridiculous. I know yellow. that. No, they are. They're uh, very yellow. They're aggressively yellow. Uh, yeah, I don't know are, how I did they that. They look like uh, they look like little tic tacs. They're usually like mm. kind of cylindrically shaped. They have mm. one or two eyes. They uh, all go by traditionally sort of Saxony male names, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they, as we learned in the movie Minions, which I think came out in twenty fifteen. Uh, they are, uh, they were not created in a lab. They are actually like their own species and they, we get, because we see their like evolutionary process and mm. they have a biological imperative to ensure that 
evil and destruction persist in the world. Indeed. And I, I, yeah, I like that about the minions. I, I've always appreciated that they, uh, they long for destruction. They yeah. want evil to continue. And yet I wish it were a little bit more like punk rock that they were actually like yeah. naughtier and meaner. Well, and this if is the, this... the minions were a little more mean spirited. It would be more fun. Th- this is my problem with the, the, I was, I was fine with the minions when it was the despicable me films and the minions were like the third or fourth or fifth supporting cast member behind grew this mad scientist, supervillain uh, who gradually finds his heart and becomes more heroic because he ends up adopting a group of orphans and they melt his mm-hmm. heart. Uh, and then the minions who were doing all of his evil stuff, like, we're going to steal the moon and all this kind of junk, uh, they gradually get used for more positive ends. Um, I feel like in that context, the minions were treated a lot like Groot. They're kind of evil. They're, they're, they're more like workaday evil. Like, this is a, it's like Wile E. Coyote punching a time clock kind of thing. Then he was actually like, a, like aggressively, I hate all things kind of evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, when we started getting the Minions spinoffs, when we started getting Minions the movie, and this is quite a few years ago now, um, they decided to make it so that Minions, yeah, th- they have this biological imperative to serve evil. And yet, you're right, because this is a children's show, mm. they refuse to show them actually doing that and actually being evil. And indeed... Uh, aside from some historical asides when they're working for Napoleon Bonaparte and, and the like, uh, and Dracula in one scene, Dracula, Dracula was funny. I'll give you that. But like, and and then they suspiciously spend all of the 1940s in a cave, because which means that otherwise they would have been somewhere in particular, and it would have been a really gross mm. subplot. Which makes me wonder, maybe this wasn't the best motivation to give the minions. But in any case, see if 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 this series had any chutzpah, there would have been like really tasteless Mel Brooks level like World War Two jokes about like the the minions kind of like messing up some sort of Nazi commandant. Yeah, but, but uh, that's that's hor- that, that's images that we don't want to put in movies for kids. No, spe- or, or I I don't want to say that. I think it'd be weird and off-putting at very very best mm. and at worst incredibly offensive. So, I, you just can't like the minions once you put them in that uniform. Like it's impossible. Mm. So, they were wise to stay away from it, but I always raise the question, why did you make that a plot point? You didn't have to. You made this up. Yeah. You could have totally yeah, made it so that these were like man-made creations or at the very least that they don't serve evil, but they serve like people with big personalities or something like that. And then you would have had yeah. all of that chaos, but it wouldn't have been quite so, yeah, so the most evil things in the world, but they only care and love. What? Yeah, the uh, I I was always operating under before I had seen a minions the the minions film from 2015. I had assumed that Gru, the supervillain, had made them. They look like mm-hmm. something he would have grown in a lab. Uh, you know th- that they're these weird sort of like gibbering mutant things that just sort of do his bidding. Yeah. Uh, no, they're just this strange species of animal that that crawled out of the sea and uh, have, have attached themselves to him. Uh, the 2015 film uh, was just about minions prior to meeting Gru. Yeah, they meet him in the uh, last scene. And, yeah. And uh, it was set in the 1960s, and it was about how, yeah, they, they had been <laughs> hiding out, conveniently hiding out in a cave throughout the 1940s, but they uh, were missing their purpose in life. So they left the cave, and they went out into the world to find a supervillain to serve. And it was the 1960s. 
So the supervillains were all very James Bond level, which is kind of where we, uh, what grew purports to be. Yeah, it's, it's a and universe yeah, where there are a lot of supervillains, but no superheroes, which is hmm. a very European approach. It's much more danger diabolic than it is anything to do with like Superman or Batman. Yeah, it's, it, it's worth noting that uh, the, the minions are, a, 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 I think they're a French creation. Uh, or, you know, the, the studio that originally conceived of the minions was, is French. Uh, but that, that film ended uh, right when they met with, up with Gru when Gru was a young boy. Mm. Uh, and in this one, they ca- we catch up with them in 1976, about a, like about five or six years hence. Mm-hmm. And Gru is now 11 years old, and he's a supervillain the way an 11-year-old would be a supervillain, in that he steals ice cream, uh, he cheats at the arcade, he eats, he eats that ice cream in front of people who are working out just to make them feel bad about themselves. Uh, mm. That kind of stuff. That's yeah. as evil as Gru gets. In this he's world. just a little but, punk, basically. Yeah, yeah. With with Which, with like know, a I, with like a fancy gun, like a, a gun that shoots jam or something like that. You're like, oh, yeah, you're gonna I, be you're I, gonna be sticky. Oh no, he has a cheese ray. Uh, there's, That's right. Uh, and uh, that that I'm okay with all that. I like this idea of the main character being this sort of like villainous little punk, and he aspires to be it's this movie's much more about Gru than it is about the minions in fact mm. uh, because Gru aspires to join this super villain group called the Vicious Six and the Vicious Six uh, as we saw in a, a prologue uh, just offed the leader of the group this guy named Wild Knuckles played by Alan Arkin uh, Alan Arkin and Julie Andrews are in this and I find it funny that kids entertainment is now being headed by octogenarians because mm. uh, 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 yeah, Julie Andrews plays Gru's mother. In ah, this, and, yeah. uh, it's like some super villain ass. Mm. Uh, so while he is off trying to join the Vicious Six and ends up falling in with this wild Knuckles character, who it turns out, of course, escaped death and they're going to team up and there's a plot there. Uh, the minions have to retrieve the film's MacGuffin, this magical stone that uh, Gru was supposed to have, but one of the minions, uh, this a new character named Otto, uh, has lost. Otto is sort of uh, gibbers a little bit more than the other ones. Like they he, don't have he, really well personalities. No, well, there's there's a cute bit where they they introduce Otto and the implication because the minions talk and it's it's you, occasionally you can pick out a word. There's occasionally an English language word. Sometimes there's a French mm-hmm. word. Sometimes there's another. But like it's yeah, basically that was a lot. Actually, all. Yeah. Done uh, intentionally. The the mm. filmmakers try to mix in little cognates and bits of a bunch of languages, so it's mm. going to sound really familiar no matter what language you speak. It's actually yeah. pretty clever. It's, it's, uh, it's clever kind of way to invent this language. It's kind of unwinnese if you know what we're talking about. But uh, okay, that, that's a that's a deep cut. It's a very deep cut. But look it up. Uh, but uh, where was it going? So like the minions are. Yeah, so Otto is the one who, whenever the minions talk, you can maybe pick out a word here and there. And the, yeah. the whole idea with Otto is he uh, he won't shut up. And the audience has no idea what the hell he's saying, but everyone else is just like, we get it. Thank you, Otto. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Thank you, Otto. Thank you, Otto. Like, yeah. it, it's whimsical. And honestly, all whenever Gru is interacting with the minions, it's usually very, very funny because he's got this really solid relationship of... Um, it's like he's got a bunch of cats, and the cats are always doing that one annoying thing your cat does, but you oh. love your cats. 
<laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. So like you kind of like roll your eyes. Like, oh, here, the cat's doing the thing again. The cat's just won't stop clawing the couch. It's the one thing. It's the one thing. I love you so much. But you're doing I the ad- one thing. And I, I, I admire that, too. I admire yeah. that there's there's a few moments of like anger where Gru gets angry at the minions, but for the most part, it's not about the antagonism between Gru and the minions. No, he's not they mean to the a, minions. A really, a really uh, profound understanding of one another. Yeah, he doesn't like smack them around or no, just, trash talk the minions. They try his patience, and sometimes he blows up a little, and then he usually feels bad about it afterwards, and they make up. And that's it's really kind of cute. But like, the, I think one of the problems with this movie is that. Uh, very quickly in the film, Gru goes off to audition for the Vicious Six. And it's this weird plot point, too, where he goes in there, and I guess they didn't realize he was a little kid. And he goes in there and just like, oh, you're a little kid? Well, come back when you steal something impressive. And I just wanted Gru to say, at the end of the first Minions, I stole the crown jewels, and I was like five. <laughs> I just wanted him to say that. Like, I already did that. Like, you didn't hear about that? It, was, it happened in public. Like it was the, the press were there. Like how did no one hear about this? Like weird. But um, in any case, he decides in order to prove himself, he's going to steal this magical MacGuffin that they got, and then the, he has to hand it off to the minions in the middle of this big high speed chase. The minions lose it, and then he gets kidnapped by Wild Knuckles in order to get. Everyone wants the MacGuffin. He gets kidnapped, and then the minions have to go cross country to find him. Mm-hmm. And I then every and then for me, the whole movie a, falls a road apart. Trip. And then for me, the whole movie falls apart. I was mildly amused until then. You know, it's not, it's made for little kids. It's not really for me. But, like, I feel like the movie kind of loses its way here and it loses all focus. There's this whole extended plot, basically, where the minions try to, like, break into Wild Knuckles' mansion. And wow. they're immediately, like, chased off by his uh, hench persons. And then they end up being rescued by a woman played by Michelle Yeoh, who's having a very good year. She's in one of the best mm. movies of the year, and she took a really big paycheck for this, presumably. Um, she fights them off, and then the minions decide that saving Gru and solving the problem of the film can wait for a few days, so they're just going to learn Kung Fu for a while. This yeah, ends up it's... having almost no impact on the story whatsoever, except it kind of arbitrarily helps end the final fight. But even then, it's like, we really didn't need this at all. This is a very short movie. How much padding do we need? A I lot. Think, uh, yeah, it, it's, it is a short movie. It's like 88 minutes. It's just in yeah. and out, which is fine. I'm fine with that. What I the only thing I can think that they were trying to do is because this movie's set in the 1970s, they're trying to make it look like a couple different 1970s movies. The road trip thing clearly owes a, a lot of debts to stuff, stuff like Easy Rider. Another was a 60s mm-hmm. movie. Fair enough. Uh, and all of the uh, all of like the kung fu stuff was from sort of the rise of kung fu cinema that was infiltrating American cinemas in the mm-hmm. 1970s. So they're they're trying to do a lot of these little kinds of. Uh, certain kinds of 70s movies and I feel like in those 70s movies the the plots weren't really straightforward in fact in, in many cases they weren't really the point and they're it's not the point here either mm. it's just going to be this efficient little vehicle t- for delivering cute little moments of uh, minion mayhem I, guess. I feel like this does that uh, not necessarily efficiently but it does it well enough mm. it's not a lot but it gives you, you know, the bare minimum of what you're looking for. And so it's it's hard to be upset because it does at least give you that. Yeah. It doesn't disappoint on that level. And you get a lot of 
cute little sight gags. I wasn't ever really, like, laughing a lot, but there were a few uh, cute uh, details that I appreciated. Uh, Wild Knuckles, for instance, lives in San Francisco, and they get a lot of mileage out of the fact that uh, San Francisco has a lot of hills, and the minions didn't know this, so they end up rolling mm. down a lot of hills. Oh, yeah. Vaguely amusing. Yeah, there's a bit where the fact that the minions are cylindrical comes in useful because they just roll down a hill, and that's yeah, kind of, yeah. and they like go for it. That was kind of <laughs> cute. Yeah, um, I, I, I see your point, and again, this is a movie with very modest ambitions, and it's hard to fault it for barely meeting them. Um, I guess but, for but me, still meeting them, no meeting them. I, I see not your point. Them at all, but I, I, I'm not angry at this movie in any way. I guess I just mm. feel that. You know, we haven't really had... It's been a while since we had a Minions movie. And I feel like... I feel like... I think it was a bit of a mistake to separate the Minions from Young Gru for so long. Um, mm. I feel like the Minions on their own are in a couple of amusing bits, but okay. I feel like everything Gru is doing with, like, his potential mentor, Wild Knuckles, is not very interesting. And it keeps running into, again, the fundamental problem... With this franchise, which is that the characters are supposed to be evil, but they're not allowed to do anything evil. There's a bit, for example, where Wild Knuckles is going to show Gru, like, the right way to rob a bank. But instead of robbing a regular bank, they decide to rob the bank of evil. Which I'm like, <laughs> um, that, isn't that good? If you rob the evil bank? Like, isn't that a good, wouldn't that be like, you're, you're defunding the evil yeah, it, well, it, the, it, the actual it, mythology of the Despicable Me universe is very confusing. Uh, it's very confusing. In this film, right? there is like a, an MI6 type organization. There's like a James Bond. Or, mm. They're barely seen, but they're in it. They talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and this is a world where supervillains are constantly doing supervillainous sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's like. But what? How does that operate? Like they clearly have their own banks, and they're there's they have superpowers and their own super villainy organizations. But I don't get the sense that this is a world overrun by super villainy. Yeah. Uh, nor is it even something like that movie Wanted, where the super villains have kind of taken over everything and are mm. like just sort of well doing that's, assassinations that's... to keep the worlds in status quo. Yeah, that's that's a little bit more the comic than the movie. But yeah, exactly. Mm. And like so, like. I guess th- th- there's something kind of enjoyably cynical I thought about the original Despicable Me and that it existed in the world where there were a lot of villains. And even Gru, Gru was not a good guy in, in the original Despicable Me. He wasn't vile, but he was selfish and not very sympathetic or empathetic. And, you know, the movie was about him finding his heart. Okay, fine. That's a perfectly good story. Um, but th- there was something I kind of bought about a world with only supervillains in it. Because, boy, does that feel like the world we live in sometimes. Like, uh, yeah. the, the people who are, you know, larger than life almost inevitably turn out to be assholes. And I kind of get that, honestly. Mm. Like, there's a, something kind of uh, uh, almost refreshing in the cynicism of this children's universe. But, again, in order to do that, at least in the original Despicable Me, Gru was maybe not... An ambitious supervillain, maybe not in a villain with uh, a villainous ethos, but he mm. only wanted to do bad things. And here, all he really wants to do is connect and find family. And I'm like, so that's not really villainous stuff. Like, I kind of wish it had more of that sort of gremlins-esque bite to yeah, it, because I feel like that's in the DNA of it. 
And they they just refuse to go there after the first uh, Despicable Me and a little bit in the first Minions. Um, mm. So for me, this movie just feels like it feels like nothing but filler. It's like a Twinkie, but it's nothing but the marshmallow fluff. And yeah. that that's that can be uh, I, I, fine. I just don't want to make a meal out of it, you know? Like, it's just sort of, I, 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 I can only get so far with that. So it's, it's okay, but I'm not terribly fond of it. And I, I don't know if I would be, like, um, gung-ho about, like, you know kids watching this one over and over again. I'd be like, you know, can we watch something with, like, vague substance? Hmm. Like, it doesn't have to have a lot of substance. I'm not asking you to watch, yeah. you know, you know. Well, what, what's happened with the, the Despicable Me series is, yeah, it started out with this guy being really despicable, and then by yeah. the time we got to Despicable Me 2, it was about him learning to be a better dad to these three girls that he had adopted and mm-hmm. uh, learning... I think it was too. Also, where he learned, to, where he found a, a wife he wanted to marry at the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah, and and it turns out she was like an undercover, like anti-villain spy, and then grew kind of became a good guy at the end, where like an actual like superhero at the end. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like maybe they realized that like, oh wait, he's not despicable anymore. We can't really continue the franchise yeah. with that. Yeah. So, so we got to back up so a little th- bit. This is- this has not been about villainy for a while. Like maybe that's why yeah. they went back to do mm. uh, just the minions, like had said it sort of in the past, where they mm. could actually do some uh, evil things. But then when we see the minions sort of out on their own, they're a lot just like like children out of their element. They they are also not villains. So that we're kind of in this back in this world again, where super villainy exists. It's more an excuse to have the fun sort of spy gadgets mm. and people talk about how they're going to do bad things without actually having anything bad, without having to address the central <laughs> premise of their entire yeah. Uh, film series. Yeah. Uh, I, I, mm. These films are immensely popular. I think just because the, uh, the minions are so just silly and unthreatening. Mm. They're like a, they're likable little creatures. I like the minions. Mm. I got nothing against the minions. Yeah, like yeah. It, it, at least in practice. Like once they're on screen, they're adorable. Once I start thinking about the whole, we're the evil creatures. I'm just like, okay, you're falling apart a little bit here because that doesn't actually <laughs> track. But the actual minions themselves, they're totally likable. And even though, like, I really didn't laugh very much at this movie. Like yeah. I, I got a few chuckles here and there. But the original Minions movie, like the the prequel Minions movie, I laughed a lot. It wasn't particularly good, but I got a lot of laughter out of it. And here, I'm mostly just going, okay, yeah, they did that. Uh, Like, I just, again, but again, I'm not the target demo for this. I don't think that's important. I think I should be able to appreciate, uh, and I'm certainly open to it. You know, I like a lot of kids' movies, but um, I just feel like there's a certain lack of ambition here. Uh, mm-hmm. that I'm just, I don't have enough affection for these characters to just run with. So, so that's it for that. But let's move on. Mm. Tell me about, now this is a movie you saw and I wanted to see this so bad. <laughs> and I was so mad I had to miss my screening of this and unfortunately I just think, you know, can't mm. pay for a lot of movie tickets right now. But, uh, tell me about... The another family movie that opened in the last couple of weeks, Marcel the Shell with shoes on. <laughs> um, this is uh, a stop motion animated, partly stop motion animated film 
uh, directed by Dean Fleischer Camp. Uh, it was written about a character that Dean Fleischer Camp and Jenny Slate invented together called Marcel. Uh, Jenny Slate, uh, the story goes, was just sort of messing around with voices. She was doing a funny voice, and she came out with this like little tiny kind of little boy voice, and they decided that that is Marcel, and Marcel is a shell. And this is a mockumentary about a documentary filmmaker who moves into sort of like a, a like a, an Airbnb, staying in, in uh, an empty house. And occupying this house is Marcel, a little shell with a single eye, a little seashell, an mm-hmm. empty seashell with a little eye. And the eye is like a little mouth. googly eye. It's like, yeah, it's like a little googly eye, and it, it can walk around, and it lives in the house with... Uh, with its grand, with his grandmother, who's played by Isabella Rossellini. Oh my god! And uh, he, over the course of like these interviews that Marcel is giving with this documentary filmmaker, who has decided to film Marcel, we learn uh, how Marcel gets around. This little teeny tiny shell steps in honey and walks up walls. Uh, learns how to sort of traverse the mouse holes in the house. Knows how to get food. Uh, they've learned how to tend a garden. Uh, they're a little bit annoyed by other like sort of neighborhood animals. And we learn that they used to, there used to be a lot more shells living in this house. Mm. Uh, but the couple that was living there fought so much that they decided to hide and they hid in the sock drawer. And when uh, the entire family was hi- hidden in the sock drawer, uh, a suitcase was filled and they were whisked away. And Marcel and his grandmother are the only ones left. And they're very lonely. Aww. And Marcel is, sweet. is a sweet innocent like kind of a little kid character who doesn't really realize that his grandmother is might be kind of in ill health and also how big the world really is and there's this really kind of almost heartbreaking scene where Marcel gets in a car with the documentary filmmaker and says well they can't be too far off they're probably nearby and it's not until like they drive up on this crest in Los Angeles and Marcel looks out and says I I had no idea I didn't know the world was so big. I didn't know there were so many houses and so many people and so many cars. And it's, it's like, oh, my God, this is breaking my heart. I feel so much for Marcel. <laughs> and, and, and Marcel just wants to live quietly eating vegetables and watching 60 Minutes. He's a big fan of Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Does he say why? Is there something Leslie yeah, Stahl? Is she very pro shell? Like what is? No, just she. She. She seems to know what she's talking about. He's a big fan of the way she reads the news on sixty minutes. God, that's cute. Eventually, Marcel will get to meet Leslie Stahl. That's the way this movie goes. Oh, um, good for him and good for Leslie. Yeah. <laughs> she's um, the real lucky one here. Uh, this is one of my favorite films of the year. This is so sweet and so gentle and so earnest. Uh, it's so difficult not to fall in love with Marcel. Marcel is such a sweet, uh, hard-on-the-sleeve kind of character, if if he had arms. Uh, the idea of this innocent character kind of looking out into the world for the first time and being kind of overwhelmed for the first time, there's a lot of growing up that Marcel has to go through. And at the same time, we kind of understand that Marcel has learned that there are also advantages to solitude. It's about being lonely, but it's also about growing into who you are. And every single little detail uh, emphasizes how well Marcel gets around. And you can tell that uh, that Dean Fleischerkamp and Jelly, Jenny Slate and the other screenwriter is uh, Nick Paley. They really kind of thought out 
what the world of this shell was going to look like. So there's a lot of really masterful shots of like shell eye view of what it would be like to be like down on the floor as this little creature, how it would crawl around, you know, how it would get through, you know, a little broken window is really kind of an issue. Uh, there's of course the perfunctory, uh, Marcel goes viral sequence when mm. the, the filmmaker starts putting the videos online and gotta have that montage of the lights yeah, the, going up yeah what I appreciate though is what that leads to is a lot of people trying to find the Marcel house and talk to Marcel and not doing anything at all to help Marcel they just want to be seen with Marcel that sounds about uh, right yeah so it's it's like okay now this is an influencer destination and now Marcel just has to hide uh, golly, what a sweet movie! Like it, 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 this. Re- this is a movie that reminds me a lot of something like Babe, where the mm. main character has is a goal and is so sweet and so decent and so polite that that's where all of their strength comes from. It, uh, and and so Marcel starts to emerge, even though you know not you know, young, a child kind of a character, not sophisticated mm. character, but begins to emerge as something wholly recognizable and admirable. Mm. Uh, and you know, I'd rather kids see something like Marcel than see something like Minions, which is, you know, as we just said, kind of kind of an empty film. I like sort of the impishness of it, but I wish it were a little naughtier. Uh Marcel the Shell with Shoes on is about uh just being sweet and gentle and kind mm. and it excoriate or it just excels in those virtues and sells them as very uh, important sorts of things. And mm. when the adult world kind of encroaches on Marcel, Marcel, you feel kind of sorry for him. You want to protect oh. Marcel. Marcel is, is everybody's pet that they want to look after. And yeah, luckily it works out for Mar- Marcel, even though a lot of this film is very much about melancholy and about sadness and about being alone. All of that is in this movie. It is so, so good. It, it's it, I, again, I didn't see this. I'm mad that I didn't see this. I will see this because this is one of the, you know, like when you go to the movies multiple times in a relatively short span and you see the trailers and wherever you go, there's one trailer that follows you. Yeah, you know, it's it's not always it's not always the same trailer for every person, but oftentimes there'll be a thing where it's just like, oh Jesus Christ, how many times am I going to see a Morbius trailer like that kind of like, (laughs) oh my god. I'm so tired of it. Oh my god! You know they're but, they're, they're bringing Morbius trailers back. They're not going to okay. re-release the film. They're just going to keep on showing the trailer. Bless them. But the one that followed me over the last couple of months uh, was the trailer for Marcel the Shell, and it got to the point where I looked forward to it because mm-hmm. almost all the other trailers that were playing, even if they were like not horror movies or thrillers or action movies or whatever they're they're always pushing this kind of intensity to it like you have to see this it will pulse it will pound your pulse you know mm-hmm. it will it will raise your blood pressure it's it's going to make, make you, your heart beat fast yeah. yeah it's like oh my god you won't believe just how fucking amazing elvis was ah <laughs> like or but like with marcel the shell it's like in the middle of this like hotbed, this almost like viral outbreak of trailers. Actually, that's a terrible way to describe it. But like in the middle of this petri dish, that's what I was going for—a petri oh, dish of go. trailers okay. where it just keeps growing and growing and growing. Um, then there's then there's just this little cute shell, <laughs> and it's he just likes shell. things, and he's sweet. And and even the trailer itself, I saw like other people in the theater, them just like 
just like untense, like they just got a back rub. It's just like, <laughs> oh, you know, that's that's nice. That's nice, mm. that shell. I like that shell. And I'm actually a little surprised given that I've never heard one unkind word said about this movie. And everyone seems to agree it's delightful. There's so much shit going on in the world. Nobody's talking about it. It's not like making a ton of money. I, I don't think mm. it's doing necessarily badly, but like... I kind of thought, because of how the trailer was getting this reaction out of people, that this would be, like, a movie we'd all get behind. Like, Babe. Like, it comes out of nowhere. Like, oh my god, we all love Babe, right? Mm. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess people like it fine. Maybe when it comes out on streaming and more people can see it, it'll be uh, make a few more waves. But, um, in any case, I it sounds delightful. I, I want to see this damn thing. <laughs> it sounds so cute. It is, it, it is, it's a salve. It's very gentle... Two of my favorite films this year have both been stop-motion animated films, and they could not be more different, because I oh, love God. how I sell the shell of shoes on. The other one is Phil Tippett's Mad God, which is like this yeah. entropy nightmare of gore and filth. Um, watching them back-to-back is a little bit of whiplash, but uh, yeah. I, I, I think I'm just, I have a weakness for stop-motion. I think I like the way it moves. It has sort of a, a life to it that CGI will never be able to to have unless uh, CGI is trying to emulate that look mm-hmm. which I've seen them like I think um, when Ardman did that uh, yeah, easily their worst movie flushed away that was a right. CGI film and they tried mm. to make the characters move as if they were stop motion I think they tried to accomplish that a little bit with like the frame rate adjustments they made in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse yeah, you notice a lot of the a lot of the early stuff in that movie. They made the frame rate a little bit more like the frame rate in stop motion, so the characters just moved a little differently. And honestly, I thought it worked great. And then eventually, it got more fluid as the characters became more comfortable with themselves. I don't think that was necessary. I just like the aesthetic. Um, but in any case, yeah, two stop motion films in in one month after like kind of a dry spell, kind of nice. It's so, yeah, it's so rare that we get them. So it's it's a medium I really appreciate, and I mm. I love it. In Mad God, and I love it, love it, and Marcel the Shell with Shoes on. Nice. Well, let's talk about a movie that, uh, judging from the tweets I saw you tweet last night, I think we're going to disagree on. Uh-oh. Uh, this is a film that debuted on Hulu this last weekend. It stars Joey King, and it mm. is called The Princess. And here's and this is, this is one of those movies where it's got an elevator pitch, and it's a good elevator pitch. Okay? okay. What if Tangled but Die Hard? So... At the beginning, ta- tangled, but the raid, but yeah, I, well, I maybe you're making, yeah, but like either way, because so basically, uh, at the beginning of the movie, it takes place in you know generic medieval kingdomania, you know, like mm-hmm. where just like it's England ish, the, the the kingdom yeah. of far far away, yeah, basically, it's it's a fairy tale kind of land, but there is no magic in it. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, Joey King, she's the princess of this kingdom, and she wakes up at the top of the tallest tower in her father's castle. And she's chained surrounded to chained to a bed, and she is surrounded by armed mercenaries who are going to keep her prisoner, threaten her with violence, and force her to marry their leader, played by Dominic Cooper, so that he could be the the quote unquote legitimate king. Mm. Uh what they don't realize is that she knows Kung Fu. So she starts kicking ass up and down this tower constantly, working her way down like a reverse game of death. Uh, and that's the movie. And that's, and, that's kind of, and that's kind of the movie. And that's it. It's basically, she fights more people. She fights different pe- types of people in different situations. She rescues her family. It's diehard with martial arts against the backdrop of kind of this sort of Disney aesthetic 
uh, uh, princess story, or, or since it's live action, imagine a bit more of Ever After. Uh, mm. That's kind of the overall visual look of this thing. Um, it's a genre exercise. It's basically, hey, we've done Die Hard in a building. We've done Die Hard in a hockey rink. We've done mm. Die Hard at a ski resort. We've done Die Hard at the White House. We did Die Hard in the building again. Did we ever do Die Hard in a castle, but John McClane is a fairy tale princess? We never got around to that. Well, well, that's a cool thing. Let's do that. And so they did. Die and Hard I, is, is I, I, again, I don't think Die Hard is quite the right analogy because Die Hard is about, you know, John McClane is a cop. He's a little bit out of his element. He's an ordinary mm, guy yeah. trying to fight against these sort of supervillains in an environment that's not familiar to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a, a movie like The Raid or, or uh, Dread, if you like, uh, mm-hmm. is a little bit more of an appropriate comparison because it's just fighting. It's just mm. fighting. It's it's not about a, a character who's out of their element. She knows Kung Fu, mm-hmm. and she's going to do Kung Fu stuff. And I'll say this for the princess. Mm-hmm. I think Joey King sells it. She's I think good. She, she's here for it. I think she's a producer on this movie. And uh, she really trained. She's really She acts during the fight scenes, which is really nice. Like, she mm-hmm. emotes while she's in the middle of a fight. Uh I mean, there's not a lot one can really emote during a fight scene. She's either mm-hmm. kind of afraid or she just grits her teeth and stabs a guy. And it's just scene after scene of that. Yeah. She's just sort of fighting and fighting and fighting. I, uh, the I get, action yeah. isn't, it isn't hugely inspired. It's actually really, really tiresome, really fast. Okay, I disagree with and you then, on that. And then the pacing of, and if you're going to do that, if you're just going to have nothing but fighting, mm-hmm. try to exhaust me. Try to, like, just mm. go all out and try to really, really push and push and push and push. Make it like a John Wick sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't stop the movie and give me backstory as to how they got there because uh-huh. it's not necessary. And it I, just kills the pacing and just uh, I agree with it all way, way down. I agree with you to a point because they want to start, like, in medias res. They want to start, like, at the start of the action yeah, Princess wakes up in a tower. If you don't know anything about the movie, you think, oh no, poor Joey King. And then your surprise is the guards are that she's just stabbed them in the head. But this is an R rated movie, by the way. This movie is very violent, and I appreciate that. Uh, like, there's easily a PG 13 version of this. They did not go that route, and I appreciate that mm. they that they went there. They, they um, put all the blood in it. Yeah, 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 good for them. Seriously, that's that was a, that was a rather bold choice, uh, considering and, and how it, it's not yeah. like one or two kills. Like, there's blood throughout. It's like yeah. nice, ni- nice, hefty R rating. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so what was what was it? Which which is which is fine. Uh, but, oh, sorry. The uh, but basically, yeah, because they start in medias res, because they start just at when the action starts, mm-hmm. we miss what would normally be the first act of the movie, sort of setting it up. Here's yeah. this princess. Her father is not happy that she has learned to be fight to fight rather than just be a princess. She was supposed to marry Dominic Cooper for political reasons. She didn't in a very Pixar brave kind of way, very publicly. Oh, right, right. And then he comes in and basically lays siege to the castle. And here we are. So they decide to reveal that backstory in flashbacks. And I'm okay with that to a point. I think... You kind of want to explain real fast. Okay, wait, who's Dominic Cooper? Okay, cool. Okay, I got it. Okay, Dad's not doesn't approve of her being all macho? Okay, cool. I got that. Okay, and here's how she learned Kung Fu because that's kind of random? Okay, mm-hmm. fine. Then stop. 
just three quick little ones. We're good. We do not need <laughs> to keep going back to that well. It gets a little tired really fast. You just mm-hmm. do it when you absolutely need to. And if you can avoid it and just do it in dialogue, I'm totally fine with it. But I because I appreciate efficiency and I understand that you want to. And I actually do like that this movie does. I think it varies the action of just enough. That it's not the same fight scene over and over again. Sometimes she's fighting really big giant minotaur type guys. And sometimes Mm -hmm. she's actually trying to like sneak across a crowded room and doing so effectively because she's very stealthy. And so I think they do a good job of keeping that very. But the thing I agree with you the most on is that, and I like this movie more than you, but the thing I think makes this movie work. didn't like this it's, movie at all. It's not your jam at all, and I totally get it, but it is mine. Mm-hmm. And I but I agree with you that the best thing about it is Joey King. Now Joey King, you know, started off as a child actor. We've seen her play a little kid in a ton of movies, and now she's an adult and she wants to do different types of roles. And so this is actually a really smart, like career move role for her because it dovetails kind of the types of roles she could have gotten earlier with the kind mm-hmm. of roles she would clearly like to get. And you're right. She threw herself into the training. She she actually is doing the fight choreography. She's convincing in the fight choreography. And she does something which is very important, which is you don't just go scowl face and mm. then do the fight choreography and then act afterwards. The thing that Joey King, I think, and this is the reason why I bring up Die Hard more than anything else, I think, besides just, you know, closed room siege with one person fighting off a bunch of guys while hiding around. Mm. I think... I would wager a guess if I could interview Joey King. I would bring this audience. Something would tell me she'd probably have something similar to say. I think she watched Die Hard and realized that the thing that makes John McClane such a great action hero in that movie, besides you know you know good writing and Baxter and stuff like that, is the way that Bruce Willis approaches the film, where he is absolutely capable of killing every single person in the room, and he will do it if he absolutely has to. But he will do it while absolutely being incredulous at how bad his day is. <laughs> and that's the thing Joey King, like, she's like, I, I have to save my family. This is a life or death situation. She never loses sight of that. But also, when she opens a room and it's full of bad guys, there's a moment like, oh, god damn, fucking really? I cannot catch a break today. Like, there's an element of just a little humor to it. Like, she appreciates that life is a cosmic joke right now, yeah, and I, I think I she, I think she really like kills it. A little it. more straight up levity on in that regard. Mm. It, it, mm. There, there aren't a lot of laugh moments. Uh, there, I also don't think there's a lot of exhilaration moments, but. It's a modest yeah. film. It's a modest action film in a lot of ways. It doesn't have yeah. like the big giant, like the the whole castle is collapsing kind of moment. It's a fight movie. And I like fight movies. I've a lot of my favorite movies are fight movies. And I think fight movies operate by certain particular rules and I think uh, along those rules I think this actually works really well. I like seeing Joey King uh throughout the movie being confronted with different uh challenges based on who she's fighting, what armor they're wearing, what weapons they're using, what room she happens to be in at the time. Uh, is anyone chasing her right now? And she has to, she can't just do the same thing over and over again. She actually has to adjust and strategize and learn and adapt. And, you know, maybe that could have been more pronounced and bigger, but it, I think it keeps the movie from feeling just like a slog where every action scene feels the same. This is a genre, like I said, this is a genre exercise. This is a martial arts movie in a princess thing in a, in a single location. Uh, it's just trying to see if it can do that and be cool. 
And I think they do a pretty good job because I think the cast is rather, rather strong. I like Olga Kurlyanko as, like, the main fight villain. Like, yeah, like yeah. Dominic Cooper isn't really the guy who's going to, like... He's the guy who's, like, dangerous because I've killed 500 people today and I'm tired and I was just stabbed in the side, but normally he wouldn't give me any trouble. Mm. Olga Kurlyanko is, like, a legitimate badass. And I think she's plays that really, really well. Uh, it, it's not very demanding per se but i think she throws herself into it and she's great um and uh yeah i think i think the choreography is fun i think the premise is kind of nifty and i think this is a vehicle for joey king and you know who's great joey king so Mm. i like this movie i think it's got i think it's a lot of fun i think if i'd seen this when i was a kid i would have really glommed onto it and thought it was something super special Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the end, this is the sort of thing where it's like I'm looking at minions and I'm thinking to myself, as a kid, I would have been amused. Maybe I would have watched it a couple of times, but I don't think it would have been part of like my memories of childhood. Like, oh, I remember watching Minions: The Rise of Gru. But I think I would remember watching this fondly as like okay. a like a slumber party when you're like in junior high kind of thing, where it's like it's R rated, but it's not like gruesome or grotesque. It's like a decapitation, which is gross, but oh, mostly yeah. I, it's just... I, I, I'd let junior high kids watch this. It's Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the right kind of R rating for it, you yeah, know? And it's yeah. and it's the heart's in the right place. It's never, like, uh, uh, dis- <laughs> it's, it's, it's never, you know, cruel or anything like that. It's They're bad guys. They get what's coming to them, you know? Like, <laughs> that's how it should be. So, I have a few issues with a few, like, things that happen late enough in the movie. It's not worth talking about, but, because uh, I don't want to, like, get into spoiler territory, but... I think they, uh, they they failed to have a little bit of commitment when it comes to escalating the tension. They sort of... Characters who you thought we were in a lot of trouble, they're not. Like, that kind of thing. But um, overall, this is a, this, I think this is a rock-solid three-star action movie. Oh, Maybe three and a half yeah. if this is your kind of fight movie. I just I just really enjoyed myself and uh I appreciate I appreciate it had a little lack of ambition and it was only um, trying to reach so high and it just did that. Uh, well, I, and it, I, you know? I wish it had more personality. I wish it were exciting to watch. This this is just sort of a bit of a, it's a bit of a slog. It's like you can look away, you can go to the bathroom without stopping it and come back and not have missed anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I described it was like th- this is the kind of movie I think you're supposed to watch like half watch while you're looking at your phone. See, uh, I, I, I was see reminded point. of like so many films that I saw uh, like in the early 2000s that mm-hmm. you'd see big piles of in the used rack at GameStop. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, something that like poses as something that's really kind of important or exciting, but is really there's nothing going on in a movie. Well, like it, this. it's a B movie, and I think that's that's know, okay. And I think and I kind of miss. Like, I, yeah. I like. I would like a better B movie. I would like okay. something that that has a little bit more of a, a, like a pranksterish spirit. Something that was a little Fair bit enough. more. Uh, I wish a woman had made it. Uh, you know, mm. there's all these like sort of facile lines of dialogue about no, you need to learn your place. No, I'm a princess. Yeah, I rescue myself. That that, that reads a little perfunctory read with you. All. It's, yeah. yeah, like it doesn't feel like they're actually really trying to say anything. To, to, I'm with to you. That angle. Yeah. I agree with uh, that. That could definitely could have been better handled. Yeah. 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 So. If it had gone a little bit further in in any direction, I would have been fine. But it mm. it sits in this really uncomfortable spot in the middle of all of this, where it's not it's not really latching on. It's not getting my mm. its hooks into me at all. I guess I just don't mind that so much. I think not every movie needs to be like the absolute pinnacle. 
of no, whatever I, its I, genre is, and I, 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 and like I get every movie to be good, and this one. Didn't I understand. Do it. Well, I thought I, I happen to think it is good, and I think one of the reasons why is that it just has a a modest mission statement that I think it achieves, and I'm reminded of a lot of very good, but maybe not groundbreaking action movies that I think are fun to rediscover because they tend to sort of get lost in the shuffle and every once in a while it's like, you know what movie had the most amazing fight choreography and no one ever talks about it? Peter Hyams is The Musketeer. Like, as a movie, <laughs> it's just okay. But seriously, watch the fights in that movie. Holy shit. Like, this is the kind of movie that I think in a normal time, like before the streaming thing, we could get dumped here by Disney. Like, it would come out, a handful of people would really love it and call it their jam, and they would be super excited about it, and it would be their favorite movie. But most people would not see it or see it and then kind of forget about it. And then eventually they would, like, rediscover it on home video or something and be like, you know, that's fun. Let's watch that again. <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. And I just kind of miss that. I miss when there was a place for this kind of scale of action yeah. movie. And I feel like there isn't enough of one right now. And I feel like dumping it onto Hulu, I'm okay. Here's the deal. I, I actually don't mind this debuted on a streaming service. It would have been kind of nice to see this one in a the theater, but like whatever. Mm-hmm. What kind of bugs me is that it seems to have been dumped with relatively little fanfare. And I kind of feel like this definitely has an audience that is going to have trouble finding it because they're not really calling attention to the fact that this is out there. Mm-hmm. So I do hope that if anything we just talked about sounds neat to you, you give it a try. It's a short film, and I, Whitney is not, like, a big action person. Like, he's not very forgiving with the genre, I think that's fair to say. Uh, unless you're going to do something, like, really fascinating or interesting or ambitious with the genre, mm-hmm. it's typically not going to get my attention. Which is totally fine, I think, but I think it's worth noting that that's where you come from. Whereas I, mm-hmm. I'm very, very fond of the action genre, just in general, and I can be maybe a little bit more forgiving than you. So, with that being said, I quite liked this, and I would recommend it, but I see your point. I just want to make sure that if people understand, like, Mm -hmm. if it sounds like it would be cool to you, there's a decent chance you're going to really going to like it. But if it sounds the sort of thing where you're rolling your eyes like Whitney, you're probably not going to get much more out of it than Whitney. There's there's plenty of straight-to-streaming service uh, genre films uh, with plenty of violence that uh, would play great at slumber parties. Uh, watch the Fear Street movies, if that's mm. what you're looking for. I know See, those aren't action pictures, those are slasher movies. But they're but, great crowd uh, pictures. And that's one where yeah. I actually argue that those are legitimately great. But regardless, yeah, those are, those yeah, are, really those are awesome. Yeah, exactly, with you. That'd be fun, actually. Just like, what are the best slumber party movies on streaming? Yeah, like... I don't know if re- I've actually seen recent, that. Of recent vintage would be... You know, I don't know if I've seen that listicle. I feel like that'd be a good thing to write somewhere. <laughs> but anyway, we'll you, to, one of us feel free to, to an editor. Feel free to take it. It's yours. Anyway, <laughs> okay. uh, let's move on. Tell me about... And I don't really have a... From the princess? Let's keep it with royalty? Tell okay. me about the king. Tell me about <laughs> Elvis, which I'm mad I didn't see because mm. I spent the better part of the last two and a half months watching every single live-action movie Elvis Presley ever starred in for an article I did at The Wrap. And then I wasn't able to go see the fucking movie it was tying into, which is hilarious. Uh, So, tell me about Elvis. Okay, well, this is uh, the latest Baz Luhrmann film. And if you're familiar with Baz Luhrmann, golly, you're familiar with Baz... If you're familiar with Baz Luhrmann, you're still shaking glitter out of your hair. Um... (laughs) 
uh, yeah, Baz Luhrmann is one of the glitziest, most ostentatious directors currently working. Uh, he's did he started in the '90s with films like Strictly Ballroom. He did Romeo Plus Juliet, that really MTV one with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, which is really good if you ignore the leads. Uh, he did a film in 2001 called Moulin Rouge, which I know has a huge following. It's a movie I despise. Uh, in fact, he's, he's so big in a lot of his movies that I have a lot of trouble uh, just sort of finding myself on his wavelength. I liked Strictly Ballroom, but after that, he kind of got way far away from me. I didn't see his film Australia. I've heard that one was a lot different from what we're, we were used to. Uh, I didn't but, see that but one. But also yeah. wasn't really well regarded. Uh, his version of The Great Gatsby is completely stupid. Uh, and here he is doing The Life of Elvis Presley. And in a weird way, he and Elvis are a really good match. And I think this is his best film in a long time. Hmm. Uh, because Elvis Presley was... Uh, he's more of a symbol than he is a person at this point. We're familiar with the legend of Elvis Presley more than we are with the person Elvis Presley. Although we're also familiar with the details of his life because he's been biography to death. This is... Yeah. Elvis is Elvis like is the, not an unexamined pop culture yeah, figure. The, the, he, this is like maybe the sixth or eighth high-profile biopic of Elvis Presley. But uh, because it's Baz Luhrmann, like, this bears as much uh, resemblance to the true story life of Elvis as the movie Speed Racer does to reality. It is this weird, colorful, fantasy, impressionist version of the Elvis story and kind of the Elvis story of the legend of Elvis rather than the person Elvis. And mm. uh, narrating the story is uh, the Colonel, that is Colonel Tom Parker, uh, who was Elvis's leech-like manager throughout his, pretty much his entire career. And he's played by uh, Tom Hanks in this really elaborate uh, makeup because he looks nothing like uh, the Colonel. Yeah. And the colonel, uh, I don't know what accent Tom is trying to do. Uh, the colonel is actually Dutch, but uh, Tom Hanks gets to sort of make up this super villain accent, this like Doctor Doom accent for the colonel. Or <laughs> he's like, "Hey, yes, I will. You, I will tell you the story of Elvis Presley, and at the end of this, maybe I will be the villain." <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we get these really uh, exciting flashbacks where we get to see uh, Elvis Presley. Uh, he was reading Captain Marvel Jr. And to sh sort of show you very explicitly what his musical influences are, he and a bunch of kids are spying on a juke joint in his town where there's like blues going on. And literally like 30 feet away is a, a gospel revival tent. And he run uh -huh. like is literally running back and forth between these two locations, uh, getting his musical influences. Uh, I like it. It's subtle. Yeah, yeah, it's, because <laughs> as, as we know, Baz Luhrmann is the most subtle of filmmakers. The film tries to go out of its way to show that Elvis was this sort of, like, intermediary between black and white America. Like, he was raised in these black neighborhoods, but now he's appearing on white radio. There's a, a scene where he's putting on a concert, and there's this, uh, uh, the black and the audiences are cordoned off, because this is the 1960s, they're still segregated. And he starts playing and everybody goes so wild that they just break down the cordon and the black and the white audiences begin mixing. It's like, oh, yeah, that's a, it's a good, uh, good subtle mm. metaphor there, yeah, Baz. That, that solved everything that day. Uh, everything. Elvis Presley mm. is an actor named Austin Butler who is 
I, I don't like to mention how an actor looks unless it's like really important, like how attractive they are. But hmm. Baz Luhrmann has a good talent of picking like the hottest, most attractive young men and throwing them in his movies. And golly, he really hit the nail on the head this time because this Austin Butler guy, he looks like a teen idol of today. And I think that was really kind of a savvy move because we're trying to communicate to modern audiences yeah. the kind of sex appeal Elvis had in the 1950s. Yeah, this is a lot of what, like, Baz Luhrmann's, like, basically everything after his, like, first movie has all been about mm. has been about trying to communicate the past using the language of the present. So, yeah, like, yeah. hey, what was what was it like watching Romeo and Juliet when it came out? Well, it would seem stuffy today, even though it was actually really, like, remarkable and rebellious and cool. So I'm going to use all the language of the MTV generation to tell you Romeo and Juliet now so you'll kind of get the gist of it. And yeah, he did the yeah. same thing with Moulin Rouge. Like, how do I convey that this songwriter is ahead of their time? Well, he's writing songs that Elton John would end up writing 70 years later, so you know they're good. Hmm. Boom. And uh, I, same vibe here, I guess, basically, where you're just trying to make sure that people who didn't grow up or even remotely near that era at least get a sense of what it felt like. Is that kind of what I'm getting at here? Rather well, uh, than what I it think, actually was? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like, um, th- this might be a kind of a strange comparison, but if you remember Oliver Stone's JFK. Yeah. Uh, that's like a really stylized movie. There's a lot of quick edits and it's really, uh, you know, it's not a, a dry courtroom drama. Oliver Stone is really directing the crap out of that movie. Oh, it's very and, watchable, yeah. And it's, even though it introduces all of these co- sort of conspiracy theories, I don't think the point of the movie was to solve the problem of the JFK assassination. I think what yeah. it was really trying to do was capture uh, a certain feeling at the time that everybody was really paranoid. They weren't really sure what was going on. And this is a movie that sort of gives you all of the theories and lets you feel as lost as the mm-hmm. uh, contemporary audience would have. And I think that's what Boslerman might be trying to do with something like Elvis. He's trying to show you the weird commercial whirlwind that was Elvis Presley and mm-hmm. how, what a prolific actor he was, how he was in, uh, Dozens of movies over the course of just a couple of years. Did they, how much did they show of the, of his movie? Because here's the thing: people forget about Elvis. Mm. Elvis spent pretty much the entire 1960s not touring, but just making movies, mostly pretty forgettable movies, mm. and selling soundtrack records. Like that was his entire career for about ten years, and yeah, he made well, over thirty films in a decade and a half. Yeah, and that's you know that's really impressive. And th- this movie says that. That was all the colonel's idea. Well, it kind of was, yeah. El- He saw Elvis as a product, and in fact, there's a lot of talk of uh, the, the colonel trying to turn Elvis into merchandise. He was like the first hotly mer- uh, commodified uh, pop artist of ever, and that was all the colonel's doing. And we're going to put you on TV. And one of the reasons they say that Elvis never did a world tour uh, is because uh, Tom Parker was actually in the United States. Uh, he left... Uh, the Netherlands came to the United mm-hmm. States, never declared his citizenship, just sort of changed his identity, and technically never had citizenship anywhere anymore. Yeah. Uh, so, so he was afraid. He, he was, was afraid if he left the country, he couldn't come back. The, yeah, he'd, he'd yeah. be uh, you know, arrested or just sort this of is, suddenly beholden to one. This nation. is also one of the reasons why, even if Elvis made a movie that was like 
set in Germany or Mexico, for example. He they always like filmed footage without Elvis, and then he would do it in a studio in California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I don't think there's going to be a lot in Elvis that Elvis aficionados don't already know. They might even be a little outraged by the staging of some of these events. Uh, the idea of him going to the International Hotel. He was only supposed to do it for six weeks. He ended up doing it for five years. Uh, the notorious Dr. Nick is a character in this. And Do- Dr. Nick, uh, it's where the Simpsons character got, got his name, was uh-huh. Elvis's uh, drug handler. He was the one who gave Elvis all of his like shots and his pills so he would stay upright uh-huh. on stage just so he could continue to make money to feed the colonel's gambling addiction. So there's a, a lot, a great deal of sadness. And at the very end, we do blend uh, the Baz Luhrmann footage with actually a really tastefully done melt into uh, actual documentary footage of Elvis giving his final performance. Uh, <laughs> I I didn't expect to dig this as much as I did. I think I enjoy... I mean, if, if you're going to mythologize any pop culture figure, Elvis is going to be the one. Uh, you... And we're going to have another one uh, of Marilyn Monroe pretty soon as well. And she's another like equally mythic figure in terms of like pop culture iconography. And I appreciate that Baz Luhrmann is not necessarily getting at the humanity of Elvis, but sort of the meaning of the myth of Elvis and kind of trying to make him feel as big as possible. And I feel like he succeeded. That's cool. Yeah. Um, well, Great, I'm I'm looking forward to checking that out. Another movie that I didn't get to check out that sounds everyone is raving about it. Mm. That's very much my jam, and I'm mad. I'm mad. I'm telling you. <laughs> uh, but in my defense, we just got a new cat, so it's been taking up a lot of our time. Uh, wow. So it's, I, he's I, very I completely understood. He's very cute, and he's spent a lot of time under the bed. So we've been mostly hanging out with him for a little while. But anyway, tell me about the black phone. Okay, uh, The Black Phone uh, is the newest film from Scott Derrickson, who did a film called Sinister, also with uh, Ethan Hawke, who's in The Black Phone. Uh, and he also did um, he did one of the Marvel films. He did, he did uh, Doctor the, Strange 1. Doc, Doctor Strange 1, he did. The first uh, one, yeah. the, the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still, so he's been around. Mm-hmm. He uh, also did that. He also did the first straight-to-video Hellraiser movie. Oh, was that him? He did, he did Hellraiser Inferno with Craig Sheffer. Oh my gosh! Uh, which um, is one of the more. That's not a good movie, but uh, it, it's, it's not good. Uh, I'll say this for Hellraiser Inferno: it, it they changed the premise of Hellraiser in that movie, mm-hmm. where Hellraiser in the previous movies was more about sort of the realm you visit when you are interested in sense pleasure. It's mm-hmm. going to offer you the ultimate erotic experience by kind of torturing you to death. That that was yeah. Uh, it's, it's very kink forward, and uh, yeah. Uh, when they got to Inferno, they decided to make it just sort of the Judeo-Christian version of hell. Like, if you yeah. commit sins on Earth, you go to hell when you die. And, that's and pretty much happened. all the straight-to-video Hellraisers focus on that, which is antithetical to what Clive Parker was doing. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So very it's, it's It's also way less interesting. And, uh, and the twist they put in Inferno uh, is predictable, but at least it had the advantage of being the first of three films in a row to do that twist. Yeah, so they just made the same movie over and over again. Yeah, it's just the same twist over and over again. New, oh new asshole cop character does bad things. Turns out he was in hell this whole time. That's the tw- I saved you three Hellraiser movies. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, you don't have to see those yeah. movies now. It's fine. It, it's, they're, all, they're, it's, all they're, good. they're all pretty bad. Um, but I, uh, yeah. 
But it kind of takes Scott Derrickson's work, and I think Sinister is one of the best uh, horror movies of the 2010s. Yeah, Sinister is really good. Uh, I know yeah. it w- there was actually like some sort of scientific study based on like how hard, oh, yeah. how fast your heart beats, and Sinister came out as like scientifically the scariest movie ever made. Like Which is nonsense because that's not the only kind of fear there is, but it is mm. quite the feather to put in your cap. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. This one is based on a story by Joe Hill. Joe Hill is Stephen King's son. And uh, this one's set in 1978. Uh, and there's this really dark, dour neighborhood. And I think uh, Scott Derrickson did a really good job of. Um, making the setting as horrible as possible. Like it's about two, two young kids. Uh, there's a Finney who is about uh, 12 or 13 and he mm-hmm. is beset by bullies. Uh, he lives at home with his single father who abuses him. Uh, there's not a lot of pleasant times in this. The only pleasant times he has is when he uh, bonds with his slightly younger sister and a slightly younger sister seems to have the gift of foresight. There's this weird psychic thing going on with her. And she also cusses ah. at adults, so we like her. Uh, oh, I'm so glad we, we, we've got a psychic kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, prowling around their neighborhood, in addition to all of the misery they're, uh, they're feeling, is uh, a, a child kidnapper called the Grabber, who appears in a black van and will grab kids, uh, young boys. Mm. And uh, over the course of the movie, he'll eventually grab Finney. And we learn to we learn what this uh, killer does. He lures kids into a basement, and he keeps them on like just keeps them on a mattress, feeds them. There's a black phone on the wall, but it's not hooked up to anything. And uh, the this grabber he wears this like demon mask. Uh, a lot of people have been saying it's really scary. It's actually kind of silly looking the, the the demon mask. But Ethan Hawke wears this mask. And he wants to play Naughty Boy. And if a kid tries to sneak out, then that will give the grabber an excuse to do some something horrible to the boy. Mm. When uh, Finney is left alone in this basement room, the phone rings, the black phone on the wall. And uh, he, he, talk, uh, he picks it up and he's able to talk to the ghosts of his previous victims. And the ghosts can't remember their names, but they remember their experiences. So they tell him, they give him advice. Like, here's where you can dig. I left something here for you so you can pick at this this one thing. Here's the, sort of the layout of the room you're in. Here's how we come, like, starts giving him advice as to how to fight back. And uh, over the course of the movie, just sort of learns more and more and more. Meanwhile, uh, outside of the basement room, we get to see sort of the cops closing in on uh, where the grabber may or may not be, if they're on the trail or not. Right. Uh, it's kind of a, a high concept premise that uh, the serial killer locks you in a room and you, there's a phone on the wall where you can talk to the previous victims. That's a little bit of a tough sell. It's not a good elevator pitch. Uh, Scott Derrickson does a really good job, however, of making all of that seem pretty organic. Uh, all of these details are, re- are released in at a, an appropriate way so that none of it seems a little too far-fetched. Mm. And so by the time we're getting phone calls from ghosts, it doesn't seem too far out of the realm. The world that we're living in is dark and kind of scary and vaguely supernatural as is. So this doesn't seem too, uh, too far fetched. And unlike something like uh, it or a lot of the works of Stephen King, which are really very nostalgic about the past, uh, but at the same time, it's nostalgic about the past. But I think if you read the book version of it, 
you'll find that Stephen King is actually being very critical of the past as well. He's trying to show that there's a lot of pleasant things, but this is also a place where clown monsters live and kids disappear and there's a lot of death. There's a, this is not the idyllic place. Uh, that's one of the reasons I think the, the 2017 movie version of It doesn't work so well, because it actually doesn't do any of that examination of the past. It just sort of sets you in the 80s and lets you feel mm-hmm. good about it, rather than criticizing anything about the 80s whatsoever. It's sort of the, the time is very arbitrary in that movie. Mm. Um, here, I don't think they're really going for nostalgia at all. It's set in the past, and the past is actually a very dark and dangerous place all around. Uh, and I think that's a, a really wise move to take. Uh, it's... And I have to bring it up, and I apologize bringing up Stephen King because this is not written by Stephen King, it was written by his son. Okay. And his son, and, you know, his son is also a horror author, but, uh, you know, has a a career all his own. He, he did, um, the book that that movie Horns was based on, the one with uh, Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, Yeah, I kind of like that one, yeah. He did a TV series called Nosferatu, but it's number four, A, number two. Uh, which I haven't seen, but I've heard good things about. Uh, so there, there's a lot that the Black Phone is doing really, really correctly, and I think it is doing a good job of examining and dissecting a lot of uh, nostalgic and serial killer tropes while adding a, lo- a new angle. There's, uh, If you're going to have another serial killer movie or another haunting movie, you have to have bring something sort of unique to it. And Scott Derrickson definitely does that. I think Ethan Hawke is really, really good. Uh, and and it's there's a few good jump scare moments as well. There's a few uh, good uh, scary ghost images sort of lurking. Yeah, I was gonna there, ask. You know? Like, I, I wanted to know. Like, you talked about how like you know, what its ideas were and how it feels about the past. But it, it, is it scary? Is it a scary mm-hmm. movie on top of all of that? Is it because you can it's, be like a good without actually being yeah scary? Yeah, it's, it, no, it's pretty scary. Uh, a, a lot of those moments in the basement are, are really scary and. Uh, you know, it, it it gives you sort of the moments you're you're aching for in terms mm-hmm. of you know scares and violence. Uh, I, I like also the um, the characterizations of some of the previous victims, uh, the ones that uh, Finney is talking to on the phone, because we get flashbacks as to sort of what happened to them a little bit, like on the outside world, and each of the victims actually has a personality of their own. So I think Scott Derrickson is really good about working with these kids and actually creating young fully realized characters they're not just sort of these vague ciphers and and that's that's actually really kind of hard to do given how infrequently i see that in movies when we see Mm. kid characters are kind of just sort of abstract versions of kids even in horror movies i like i feel like they don't get the the characters great um i was really fond of um uh, was it Annabelle Comes Home, where they just sort yeah. of, where it's the Goosebumps thing, where they just open the basement and all of the ghosts get out? Yeah, that was Annabelle Comes Home. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, I like Annabelle Comes Home. Sam, that I, was I, great. I couldn't, t- I couldn't tell you anything about the characters in that movie. That's not a character movie. That's just sort of a, a good <laughs> spook show. It's really wonderful. But uh, yeah, I, I think Scott Derrickson actually bothered to do something with these people, and that's kind of helps it up. It kind of uh, it elevates it a little bit. All right, well, that's awesome. Um, let's see here. Let's let, why don't I review a movie? Yeah, you 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 saw. You want me to review? I, so, I saw yeah. some movies. I saw a handful of flicks. Uh, let's do a, like a massive about face and talk about a romantic comedy. Oh, okay. Uh, and this is a period piece too, and it's an, uh, uh, it's a film called Mister Malcolm's List. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's based off of a self published novel uh, that was then 
uh, acquired, and they made like a 10-minute short film kind of uh, condensing the first act into uh, a pretty tightly constructed thing. Some of the members of the film's cast were in it. A couple of uh, big names were in the short film that didn't make it in the film, like Emma Chan. Um, or Gemma, Gemma Chan. Oh, is it Gemma? Okay, well, yeah. I, I never, I always get that. I always, I always get that one wrong. <laughs> uh, whether it's Gemma Arterden or Gemma Chan, I always, yeah, that, uh, it, I always, it, I always it, with a hard G and that's just me not knowing enough Gemmas. Um, yeah, but um, in any case, it's, it's a very, very sweet little film. It takes place in, uh, around Victorian England. Okay. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it is about, it, it is the season and all of the young eligible women are trying to, uh, uh, uh find, uh, well-to-do good match husbands. And okay. this season, uh, the most eligible bachelor is a man named Mr. Malcolm played by Chope Dirizu. And Mr. Malcolm is wealthy, but he's incredibly discerning. And at the beginning of the film, uh, a, a woman named Julia Thistlewaite, played by Zawe Ashton, okay, is trying to trying to nab Mr. Malcolm for herself, and he takes her to the opera and he asks her a couple of questions, uh, basically to try to find out if she like knows things and cares about stuff, and she flunks that test really hard, and then it turns out. Mr. Malcolm has, and this is shocking to everyone around him, in a very, uh, in, in a very like high society kind of like Maggie Smith would fan herself kind of way. Uh, he has a list, and that list is a very long list of requirements for anyone he would marry, mm. and it's partly designed so that he doesn't have to marry anybody, but theoretically he is looking for someone to fill every requirement on that list. So, as a form of revenge. Julia enlists her childhood friend Selena, played by Frida Pinto, okay. to to come to London for the season, and they are going to train her so that she will meet every single requirement on Mr. Malcolm's list, and he will fall madly in love with her, and when he asks her to marry him, she will say, no, because <laughs> I also have a list, and you flunked it. Doesn't feel so good now, does it? Which is very immature. It's a very immature scheme, which is well, which yeah, is but, you know, yeah. well deserved, perhaps. And, yeah, like he's he's kind of an asshole, and you realize that, like you know, he's everyone's after him, you know, and like he, he, he you kind of sympathize with where he's coming from, but he's also being a dick about it. Mm. And it's it's but it's the sort of like kind of immature mind game that would like remember back in the nineties when all of those like Jane Austen and Shakespeare adaptations were being made in high school. Mm. Like this is a, this is a modern novel, but this feels like one that could adapt to high school very well. Okay, you know, like it's that it's that level of just pettiness. Yeah, on hand here, and of course, Frida Pinto and Mister and Chope uh, uh, Dirizu, uh, they meet before the scheme could po- actually begin, and they immediately sparks fly and they hit it off. <laughs> so it's, before she's ready with her game face on to lie to somebody. Uh, she's already kind of fallen for him, and vice versa. And then throwing a little chaos into the mix, uh, a a handsome captain played by Theo James uh, shows up, and he's also interested in Selena uh, because she knew his aunt very, very well, and his aunt spoke very, very highly of her. Uh, but then Julia starts kind of following, falling for the captain as well, and who will end up with who? 
I tell you. Will they wear nice things? Will they take long walks on cobblestones? Yes. Yes, they will. <laughs> they will do all of those things and it will be delightfully charming. Um, this, this movie feels very, very much of a piece with... And it's going for it. It's, it's going for it in the way that, like... I don't know, like Sleepless in Seattle was trying to feel like, you know, like, hey, remember old movies? Like that kind of uh-huh. thing. Yeah. But there's no like there's no meta element to it. They're not like, oh, this is just like a Jane Austen novel I just read. Like, there's none of that. It's very clearly people consciously trying to evoke the feeling of a Jane Austen novel or even Jane Austen adaptations of the 90s in particular. Uh, those are not bad things to evoke. And we do not have a lot of those right now. Mm. So... I'm not super mad about it. It is a little disappointing that Mr. Malcolm's List has none of the biting social commentary that you would find in a Jane Austen story. Hmm. It's it's not really about that. It's not really a satire of the class system or the hypocrisy of how women are supposed to be treated in a romantic situation, whereas men are held to a different standard. Um Jane Austen's full of that. It's mm-hmm. full of wonderful commentary on the situations that she dealt with. But, like, this is basically... This is romanticizing the era. It's a very inclusive look at the era, which I like. Uh, and it's basically just the straightforward rom-com version of it. It's a little longer than it needs to be. I think it's pushing two hours. Doesn't need to be that. Mm. Um, but the cast is delightful. Everyone in it is really, really good. The people you've seen before rarely get to be this good. Frida Pinto hasn't had a good leading role like this. In, I can't remember when. Uh, Theo James is a charming, handsome young man, but he rarely gets to just play that. They always try to give him like some kind of darker edge in the Divergent movies or something like that. No. <laughs> Put him in a goatee. Put him in a 1900 captain's uniform. <laughs> let him play. And he's... Wonderful. I was unfamiliar with Chopin Dirizu before I saw this. I want to see him in a lot more things. Mm. It is a great, uh, uh, just sort of uh, uh, affable, sweet, eh, derivative, contrived rom com. But that's part of the that's part for the course. Uh, and um, yeah, I, it 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 fed something. It, it feds an appetite in me that I didn't realize I had. Like you know, like when you have like a craving. For something you something you can get anywhere, but only from a specific restaurant that doesn't exist anymore. You know, like oh, remember oh, when they yeah. used to have that like that great teriyaki place down the street, and no one did teriyaki quite like them, and they're not there anymore, and I just can't scratch that itch. Yeah, we uh, we had a pizza joint, uh, an Italian restaurant nearby called mm-hmm. Anna's. That I still get cravings for the Anna, Anna's pizza. Exactly. Oh, so like it's it's that kind of thing. Like mm. it's scratching that like nineties. Jane Austen itch. It might not be as filling, but it gives me the taste. And I quite liked it, and I think if you have any affection for that kind of storytelling, cinema, those level of rom-coms, you're going to have a lot of fun with it, and I think it's totally worth checking out. Alright, and uh, the next film is actually all commentary and no fun. Uh, (laughs) Oh, that sounds sounds better. uh, Is it... Uh, it's called it's called The Forgiven. It is the latest film from John Michael McDonough. Uh-huh. Uh, John Michael McDonough is, I think, the older brother of Martin McDonough. And um, 
John Michael McDonough likes to do a lot of like sort of morality tales. He did a really, really great movie with Brendan Gleeson called Calvary, mm-hmm. uh, where Brendan Gleeson played a priest and someone confesses that he's going to kill him in a week. And he's mm-hmm. got to figure out why. What sin did I commit? And it's fucking great. Like, Brendan Gleeson should have been nominated for an Oscar, should have won an Oscar. He's amazing in it. Uh, he also did a really, really great movie with Don Cheadle and Brendan Gleeson called The Guard, which is a very uh, interesting take on buddy cop movies. Uh, I highly recommend it. Um, here, he's working with a lot less entertaining material. Uh, it is the story of uh, a middle-aged couple... Well, she's middle-aged. He's, he's clearly not. It's Ray Fiennes and Jessica Chastain. They're married. They hate each other. Uh, and they are on vacation in... I want to say it's Tunisia, but they're in, they're in Africa. Oh, they're in Morocco. Sorry, I just checked. They're in Morocco. Um, they're on vacation in, in Morocco. They are going to this lavish, sort of Gatsby-esque estate owned by a friend of theirs, played by Matt Smith from Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And while they're going there to go to this isolated palace in the middle of the desert where white people will enjoy their privilege, do a lot of cocaine, watch fireworks go off and jugglers, fuck people they're not supposed to fuck, Mm. and generally speaking, just making the lives of the Moroccan people who work there miserable. While they're driving there, he's drunk, and they run over a teenage boy. Okay. Got it. They they get to the party. They've got the corpse of the boy in the car. <laughs> oh, and wow. they say, well, what are they supposed to do? Leave him in the desert? So they're like, listen, wait, wait, wait. they didn't know what we were supposed to do. We, like, we, were, we brought him here with us. Mm. Uh, whoops. Uh, it was an accident. We didn't do it on purpose. Uh, eh. Uh, Ray Fiennes is pretty outwardly bigoted and Jessica Chastain is so miserable in her marriage that she barely has time to feel anything about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, it it gets more complicated when, uh, the boy's father shows up. The police are very eager to just sweep the whole thing under the rug because there's still this element of, well, you're, you're how rich? We'll let it go. Like that kind of thing. But then the boy's father who's, who, uh, uh, lives in the desert and uh, they make their living by digging up uh, fossils and selling them to rich assholes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fa- the boy's father shows up and uh, he says, I- I'm here to pick up my son. And he says, I, I would like this guy, this Ray Fiennes, this asshole, mm-hmm. uh, to come with me to bury my son. And the implication is, this is just like, this is expected. So Ray Fiennes leaves his wife, Jessica Chastain, at the party, which is going on for multiple days. Well, he goes off into the desert to possibly be killed. He doesn't really know what he's in, what he's in for. Okay. Uh, and over the course of the film, basically from that point, it bifurcates. And Ray Fiennes starts learning a valuable lesson about bigotry. And Jessica Chastain starts learning a valuable lesson about how she's Jessica Chastain and she can get anyone she wants. And she could be much happier without Ray Fiennes. Mm. And at that point, it all becomes frustratingly perfunctory. Like, it's actually kind of an interesting setup. There's this, there's these... The, the most interesting moments are the moments in which nothing's happening, actually. Where they have arrived at the party and they've done this horrible thing. 
Yeah, they didn't do it on purpose, but they did a horrible thing. And they're still trying to eat dinner and have casual conversation. Like, that moment alone says a lot about who they are, how much they value the life that they have just taken. Mm. That they only care about, will we be in trouble for this? They don't care about the, the fact that this young boy is dead. Uh, all of that's really rather potent. But then the, the movie just starts hitting things on the head harder and harder. And then, like, Matt Smith has a speech about how maybe Ray Fiennes is a bigot, ironically, and actually he's the best guy I know. And I'm like, no, don't <laughs> do not do that shit. That's, that, that, that doesn't read at all. Um, and then it ends up just by focusing so much on the characters who are enormously privileged... Mm. And how this is the, the the death of this teenage boy has been a great learning experience for them. Uh, it ends up kind of losing the thread, and no matter how edgy they try to make a couple of plot points late in the film, um, mm. it it never really feels like it has the bite it clearly needs to have. So okay. it's a it's a bit of a letdown. Honestly, it's mm. it's a good cast. It's a good director. The material raises interesting questions and could have been done in a very challenging way. And instead, it part of it kind of just feels like you know what it feels like. It feels like you read this book, and it's based on a book. Uh, mm. y- you read this book for for a class assignment, and now you got to do an oral report about what happens in it. And you tell the class what happened in it, and then you sat down. And that's kind of how it feels. It doesn't really feel like no John Michael McDonough. There's no like, yeah. thesis or it, it, or if there is, it's just pretty on the nose. Like it's just it's it doesn't really feel like someone the person making this movie felt like this needs to be a movie. The people have to know. Like <laughs> no, it just kind of feels like we're getting through it, and that's a bummer because there's a lot of talent on hand here. I think Matt Smith and. Um, uh, who plays his boyfriend in this? Caleb Landry Jones. They're really fun in this movie. Uh, but for like the Matt most... Smith, yeah. like, he's got... He's cursed. Well, like, I, I feel like he, there's a good performance to be found in him somewhere. But he just keeps I, on showing up in these, like, un, like thankless roles in bad movies. I know. that. The, I feel like he's... It's, it's like... Remember when Oliver Platt had this curse for a while? Like, he was always the best part of a bad movie? Yeah, I'm, like, I'm not saying that Matt Smith is like the best part of these movies, but I, I feel like he's got a lot, of, a lot of potential that he's not living up to. If you watch like the better, his every person who plays the Doctor and Doctor Who has bad episodes. It's just the way that that mm. series works. They're not they they're not all winners. I mean, it's, it's been but, going on for 50 years. I mean, there, yeah. there's got to be stinkers here and there. True. I guess I guess my point is that I don't care whether you were Doctor Who for one season or for seven. Uh, there, there's, there's no, like, no one has a perfect record. Um, Mm. and, but when Matt Smith was on it as the doctor, he was one of the best doctors. And I've actually heard it said, and I, I think it's a pretty good way of putting it. Um, he's, he actually had the potential to be the best doctor, but he didn't have the best material. And I feel like that's unfortunately following him into his movie career where he's clearly charismatic. He's clearly interesting. Mm. He clearly is trying to bring something to roles that isn't even on the page. Like he's he's doing something. You know what was the best and most interesting uh, uh, like Matt Smith 
movie I can think of was actually... Hold on, I wish I could get it right. Um, uh, Morbius. It's called Morbius. Well, I actually thought it was pretty good in Last Night in Soho, but no, the movie I was mm. thinking of is Lost River, which was the directing uh, uh, debut of Ryan Gosling. Oh, weird. Uh, okay. Which is a very it, it kind of it was oh, briefly a festival thing. Out. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't see it, but I remember when that came on. It that one came out. It's a, it's an odd film in a lot of ways. It really mm-hmm. kind of feels like Ryan Gosling is trying too hard. But I will take Ryan Gosling trying too hard over John Michael McDonough not trying enough. And it's kind of this weird, semi-realistic, semi-dreamlike, semi-post-apocalyptic story about a town that's dying and. Matt Smith plays this incredibly odd villain character who is like half Lord Humongous, half your bully in high school. Uh, And he's really great in a very strange and maybe not very, very good movie. But again, he just can't catch a break. He's working with Ray Fiennes and Jessica Chastain and the movie didn't turn out that good. He decides oh, to fuck it, I'll do a Marvel movie. People like those. They they seem to help people's career and he ends up picking Morbius. Like I don't, I don't know, I don't know if it's an agent thing or whatever, but like he's clearly talented. He's he's one of the best parts of this movie. Uh, the other person who's really good in this movie and I want to give him a quick shout out because uh, I don't know when I'm going to have another option. I want to make sure I get their name right is uh oh I'm, i i hope i get this name right it's saeed Tagmoe. okay uh really really cool actor uh he was in uh lahane which is uh one of the truly awesome french movie from 1995 mm-hmm. uh he was the guy who tortured mark Wahlberg in three kings uh, which is a really oh, standout okay, role in that yeah. movie. Yeah, get that great no, had that great that speech about okay. he had that great speech about michael jackson um so he's a really, really good actor, and he's also very, very good in this movie. But um, yeah, the movie—it's—it's just—it's. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of done with it, honestly. It's—it's it's not. It's going to be one of those movies mm. where you know we have to talk about it now because we're reviewing it and it's fresh in my head. At the end of the year, I'm going to look at the list of every movie I watched in 2022, and I'm going to look at the title and go, "Wait, which one's that?" <laughs> that's what it's going to be. That, that's already happening with me this year, but yeah. There's always a couple. Like, in fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like go. No, I'm not gonna do it. That's 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 harsh. I could go through my list right now and just pick out a title and be like, wait, which one was that? Doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, but that's what happens. These movies just, if they don't make an impression, they just sort of fade from memory. That's life. That's they, they can't yeah. all make that a big impression. Sadly, this isn't one of them. So, uh, but uh, tell me about. We got two more movies to review, uh, and you saw the new film from Peter Strickland, right? I did. Peter Strickland made a new movie, and I didn't even hear like hear of this until it was already out like the Um, the trailer came out and it looked really really exciting and then you said you saw this this weekend and i'm like wait that came out yeah like it it was in theaters and it was instantly available for rent online so i rented it i wanted to see this one because peter strickland is uh he's this generation's uh peter greenaway which i mean doesn't i know that doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people but um Uh, Peter Strickland is, he's a British filmmaker. He did a film called Berberian Sound Studio in 2012, which I didn't see. Oh, that movie's, you would love that movie. That movie is so dour and ponderous. You would love that movie. It's it's a, a, Toby Jones plays a sound designer from Britain who is like, travels to Italy, I think in the 70s, to work on a Giallo movie, like a, like a elaborate slasher. 
And while he's there, he is mistreated by the bureaucracy. He's not sure he's going to get paid. And he starts kind of losing himself in the movie. It's great. It's so fucking good. It's exactly your kind of movie. Um, yeah. I did see his film, The Duke of Burgundy, which was I love this, that movie. Th- this like sapphic S and M movie about lepidopterists who like are somehow trapped in the movie, the uh, the bitter tears of Petra von Kant. It's highly stylized, very um, mm-hmm. sexually charged. It's all about like power dynamics in a relationship. Uh, he also did That's a, one of the best movies of the 2010s that no one saw. It's so fucking good. It, I love it, that movie to pieces. It's really, really good. He also did In Fabric a couple of years ago, which was a horror movie about a haunted dress, uh, like a mm. living killer dress that's like floating eh. around and murdering people. And, Toby and it, Hooper did it first. Toby Hooper did do it first. And it, what was it called? <laughs> I'm Dangerous Tonight. Uh, yeah, with, with Machen Amick and Anthony Machen Perkins. Amick. Yeah, it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good movie. It's not a good movie. It's that, actually quite in, bad. <laughs> in the Toby Hooper movie, the dress is like made of like a, a scrap of like a mummy's cursed shroud. Uh, in fabric, it's it's actually a little bit more elaborate. Uh, now he's made a film called Flux Gourmet, and this is a very strange premise for a movie. And it reminded me a lot of uh, Crimes of the Future because both of these movies take place in this weird alternate universe where really arch performance artists are the world's biggest celebrities. Mm. And uh, in Crimes of the Future, it was about, uh, it took place in the future. Uh, Viggo Mortensen played a guy who, who was spontaneously growing organs in his abdomen, like new kinds that they couldn't identify. And the performance art was he and his performance partner, played by Leia Sadu, would perform surgery live in front of people. And they would remove mm-hmm. the organs and everyone would, would like sort of do these little golf claps. Oh, yes. Very, very, very arch. Very important. Mm. And then they provocative. And have yeah. these, yeah, these meaningless conversations about the importance of the art. Uh, Flux Gourmet takes place in the world of what they call sonic catering, which is competing performance art groups are looking to get a spot in this uh, well-moneyed enclave run by Gwendolyn Christie, uh, where they perform by extracting soundscapes out of food and eating experiences. So they're seen like, sw- like stirring soup or putting uh, uh, like electrodes into cakes or slapping things with their fingers or coating their bodies with like pig blood and then trying to use these weird sort of mixing materials to make these big sonic soundscapes. Uh, Mm. Evidently, this is something Peter Strickland has been doing on his own for years. (laughs) This is like a hobby of the filmmaker that he's now writing into a fictional movie. And Peter Peter Strickland is actually, and I want to buy these if I can find them. Peter Strickland has put out soundtrack records of these sonic catering soundscapes that he's put together. It sounds amazing. Oh, my God. And the movie Flux Gourmet is about this trio of performers. Uh, They're played by um, uh, Fatima Muhammad, who's been in all of Peter Strickland's movies, Ariane Labed, and uh, and, uh, Asa Butterfield. And... uh, And Asa Butterfield is like the the young punk of the group, and he's not quite up to the speed of the other ones. Whereas uh, uh, Fatima Mohammed uh, has that sort of pretentious artist air, 
where Gwendolyn Christie, after their first performance, comes to her and says, I have a note. And she gets defensive immediately. How dare you give me a note? What I'm doing is very, very important. And well, what I was hoping is that you could use this one widget a little bit less. I will use that widget as much as I want. What was that widget again? Yes, I will use it as much as I want. Uh, so, <laughs> and they have uh, they perform these sonic these sonic foodscapes for uh, a crowd of onlookers, and then there's a perfunctory orgy afterwards. All of the onlookers are welcome backstage, and they all have sex. Uh, this entire movie is told from the perspective of a Greek uh, reporter named Stones. He's played by an actor named Macus uh, Papa Papadimitriou. Uh, and his, uh, he's going through his, a drama of his own. He's reporting on this story, and he's trying to sort of get into the uh, high art world of sonic catering. But he himself is afflicted with uh, uh, perpetual flatulence. He's just farting all the time. <laughs> and he can't let his farts be heard because that would be very unprofessional. He doesn't want to interrupt. And he knows that these people are very uh, preoccupied with the alimentary canal and digestion and all the rest. So he doesn't want to mm. interrupt their muse. And of course, mm. when they finally find out that he's been farting a lot, they want to incorporate him into the act. And there's a lot of, of high, a lot of high-minded uh, conversations oh about the separation between reporting on art and becoming part of the art scene and becoming part of the act. And where is the line between becoming professional and unprofessional? Well, when I actually do pre- appreciate that they have that conversation. That's yeah, actually yeah, yeah. very respectable. Yeah. Uh, the Gwendolyn Christie character, meanwhile, <laughs> is becoming a little bit too involved because she starts having an affair with, with uh, the Asa Butterfield character. Uh, this movie is really fucking weird and golly i loved every second of it Uh, every pretentious conversation about art really starts to stand out because it's of an art that barely exists as far as i know peter strickland is the only person who engages in this particular form of performance art uh i find it really fascinating that both peter strickland and david cronenberg have tried to create these kind of semi-satirical worlds about sort of the the pretentious world of high art where high art is actually taken seriously, where these kinds of weird forms of performance art has turned people into celebrities when they themselves are trying to create challenging works of art that can frequently get them into trouble or, you know, they're... I think David Cronenberg has been around long enough that he is now an institution, but for the longest time, people would look at a movie like Crash from 1996 and kind of sniff at it. Oh, it's David Cronenberg. He's just being provocative for the sake of it. He's, Mm. you know, I I feel like both Peter Strickland and David Cronenberg have maybe talked to too many critics and now are trying Mm. to send up maybe the very thing that they are trying to do, that is present the world with challenging art, but at the same time, challenging artists are objects of derision and mockery in both of these movies. They're respected as artists, but they're seen as being kind of horrible people in a, in a comedic sort of way. I think uh, Flux Gourmet is very much a comedy. Uh, it's being sold as a horror movie, but it is not a horror movie. There's well, not, it's there's an easier not a sell as a horror movie, isn't it? Like it's uh, The comedy you're describing is not... Uh, again, we're talking about elevator pitches. Yeah. 
it's not it's not a good comedy elevator pitch but no, it took like me a long in, time in a, to in a describe this movie yeah, yeah. well it's kind of like Barbarian Sound Studio in a way like it, there's actually nothing overtly horrifying that happens in that movie mm. like you'd think based on the description i gave earlier that it would be like, he descend into madness and maybe he'll kill and it's like no it's just it just sort of sucks for him but like the overall tone is frightening and i think that's something peter strickland's really like uh, 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 i would say even uh, duke of burgundy Mm. It manages to feel kind of horrifying in parts, even though it's actually not. I'd, I'd call it, like, maybe a dark romance, if you like, but it's definitely, like, a romantic film. It's about a relationship. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, not... This, and it's not a, yeah, Fox exactly. Is, so, is a, a, an art satire. It's not, it's not a horror movie. Uh, I, I was laughing more than I was afraid, and there are, like, some grim sort of body horror elements, but no, it's not a horror movie. That That's, that's okay. a misnomer. Uh, I know that... Um, yeah, like if if you see the ads, it's gonna say yeah, it's a chilling experience, but it's not really chilling. It's actually sillier more than anything. Well, that sounds much more interesting than maybe how it looked. So I'm really glad. To, mm. uh, I'm really glad you told me. Um, well, in any case, we got one more movie left to review, and it is a documentary uh, called Accepted, and it is, of course, uh, about that one Justin Long uh, Jonah Hill movie where they couldn't get into college, so they made up their own college. And they made up their own classes, and eventually they had to explain why their class should, school should be accredited, and everyone had a valuable lesson, and Justin Long made out with Blake Lively. Uh, oh no, poor Justin Long. Um, yeah. Are, are, so you're saying that was based on a real event? or, or, or <laughs> No, I was, I was kidding. It's just, it's, just, it's just, for whatever reason, we're reusing the title and no one's complaining about oh, it. Um, yeah, yeah. No, well, this is a movie. This time, for goodness sake, it does. I know. I just always. It, I always find it distracting. Yeah, like I, 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 it, it's not obscure every, that no movie. Reason, I don't know. Something like there are no other movies called Flux Gourmet. That's an interesting <sighs> right. title. Yeah, there's no other movie called Minions: The Rise of Gru either. Like I don't know. Like if it's I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, the, this movie is a documentary. It is about uh, uh, the people who run a school called TM Landry. Uh, which is a prep school in, I think, Louisiana uh, that uh, focuses on teaching uh, teenagers of color mm-hmm. uh, and helping them get into college in a system which is largely rigged against them. Uh, and T.M. Landry got in the news quite a few years ago when they started having these viral videos of their students checking their emails to see if they were accepted to college and then it turns out every single one got into college and a unusually high number got into ivy league schools Mm. and these are kids who are uh you know they're not rich they're not going to fancy prep schools this is a very small uh you know small town organization and now they're on the talk show circuit. Everyone's like, how did you do it? What's the secret? How, why are you the greatest teachers in the world? And these filmmakers decided to do a documentary about T.M. Landry to see what they're doing. And we see, like, the guy who runs the joint. And, like, he. it seems like, you know, he's a great, you know, uh, motivational speaker. And he's at home with the documentary crew. And his kids are calling him, like, late at night because they're doing their math homework. And he's helping them out with it. And mm-hmm. it just seems like this really idyllic situation. And then the accusations come in. 
Ah, oh, they, and they—they were bound to be, weren't there? It's yeah. This this other shoe has got to drop, and unfortunately, uh, it turns out, uh, uh, according to the documentary and the people involved in it, that um, T.M. Landry was falsifying transcripts, and they also were basically taking, mm. were basically talking to various colleges and saying, "Hey, we've got students who." want to get into your school, what would help them get into your school? And then they would basically just say, okay, well, they'll need, like, hard luck stories in their, like, uh, uh, college essays mm. to get noticed. So then the guy's like, okay, write these things, put these things in your essay. And they were basically manipulating the system in order to get these kids into Ivy League schools. And it was working, but then they got caught. It turns out the guy actually told some of his students a documentary crew was going to... He didn't tell them a documentary crew was going to be at his place tonight. But when that documentary crew was at his house, he had told kids to call that night and ask for homework help. Like, he was very carefully manipulating the system to make the school seem like it was the best school in the universe. What happens when that is discovered is there's sort of a bifurcation in the class. Some kids stay. There are some accusations that he was somewhat physically abusive to some of the kids. There, I think the word choking uh, was used, although they, we don't really see a lot of that. You know, the documentarians weren't privy to it. Uh, and a lot of kids left because, well, it looks bad, doesn't it? Like, yeah. how am I supposed to get into a good school if I'm going to this place that has been discredited? And their life got a lot harder because they didn't they weren't no longer working with people who were manipulating the system. Hmm. But what I appreciate about this documentary is that it ultimately, while it, it, it is basically trying to say like, you know, this was, this was fucked up and really hurt a lot of kids. And a lot of the kids who stayed were felt like kind of obligated to like, what are my other options? Yeah. It does in the end acknowledge mm -hmm. very clearly and concisely that there is a massive double standard. Where the system is twisted by people with money yeah. to benefit kids who would not need to go to a school like T.M. Landry. Who maybe aren't even that interested in academics. All the kids who went to T.M. Landry wanted to go to college. Mm. Like they had ambitions and goals and they were trying really, really hard. And a lot of kids from like rich white families, you might recall that big scandal... Uh, with uh, uh, was it uh, the 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 lady oh, from uh, uh, Full House? Yeah, the right. The, um, yeah, yeah. I, I hear yeah. you're talking about. There, there was this college admission scandal a few years ago where a lot of uh, uh, wealthy white people, some of whom were famous celebrities, uh, were basically bribing they were or their way into college. So, they were buying uh, them in a variety of ways. They were getting like other people to take SAT tests for their kids. Their kids didn't even want to go to school that bad. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, like it's and it's it, and it's it horrifying. Revealed, so like, it revealed how like just what a scam call yeah. like cert, like those expensive private universities yeah. are. How they're they're meant as a yeah. club for the wealthy rather than an educational yeah. institution. Exactly. And so what I appreciate is by the end of it, accept it, which is a very captivatingly told documentary, mm. excellent in every level. It doesn't just perfunctorily give what happened. It actually raises the meaningful question at the end. Which is okay. This person, these people were manipulating the system. The system's already fucked. Yeah. So it, it, it was all ripe for being manipulated, and people yeah, did it. it. 
And so, like, there is... A, so, like, yeah. And and as a result, this is not... Well, if there's any physical abuse, obviously, there's there's no excuse for that. Um, there's also a sort of a thing where it's like, well, what the fuck were they supposed to do? Uh-huh. Which, you know, there's, there's a cut and dry moral responsibility there where you're just like, well, you're not supposed to do that. But... The, the movie points out, we don't live in that world, and it asks a difficult question. Mm. And I appreciate that it asks that question, I appreciate that it understands the complexities inherent in that question, uh, it follows really interesting people, a lot of the students uh, who we follow whose lives are made in- immeasurably more difficult by leaving TM Landry, which mm. keeps going after the scandal, and kids keep getting accepted into college, Uh but they're trying to do it the right way, and then making their lives a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really excellent documentary. I hope a lot of people see it. It's pretty short. Like it's not like you know this like eight hour whatever thing. It's like ninety minutes. It's like very efficient, uh, and it's incredibly well told. And I, it's excellent. I hope people see it. All right. Sounds, All right. Sounds, sounds fascinating. Indeed. Okay. So that's it for the movie reviews for this week. Let's review them on a scale of C- to C+, because that is the critically acclaimed way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we review films on a scale of C- to C+. C+, is the highest rating a movie can get. That's above average. <laughs> that that We highly recommend that. That's, mm-hmm. that's better than average. What more do you want? A C is average. There's some good. There's some bad. It's more for one audience than another, maybe. And a C- is below average. Yeah, we don't yeah. recommend it. Maybe we even think it stinks out loud. On that note, accepted... Big ol' C+. Excellent okay. documentary. Tackles the material very, very well. Asks the right questions. And it doesn't pretend it has all the answers, which I appreciate. Uh, uh, Flux Gourmet. Whitney. Uh, C+. I, I love Flux Gourmet. I love how strange and ambitious and unique it is. Hmm. Nice. Okay. Uh, the Forgiven... I'm going to give it a C minus. Uh, there's a few actors doing excellent work in it, but overall, it's 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 a, it's frustratingly uninspired. Despite again asking mm-hmm. some difficult questions, uh, so bit of a letdown. Okay. Uh, Mr. Malcolm's List, on the other hand, I give a C plus. Not the biggest C plus I've ever given. It's a little fluffy, but it is not trying to be anything else. Mm-hmm. It is evoking some of the most entertaining parts. Of the better Jane Austen adaptations. Doesn't quite capture the social commentary. But the cast is wonderful. It hits all the right notes. Even if they're a little familiar. Uh, it was it absolutely hit the spot. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Hmm. Uh, the Black Phone. Uh, the Black Phone. Uh, a C plus. Not a very passionate one. But yeah. It's it's a nice, dour, uh, scary, dark horror movie. In a, a way that you want your horror movies to be. So yeah. It, can't find too many faults with it. Nice. What about Elvis? Uh, also a C plus for Elvis. I, I was uh, astonished at how much I liked a Baz Luhrmann movie because I'm usually not a big fan of his. Uh, but yeah, I think he did a a wonderful job of turning Elvis's life into this like grand artificial myth uh, in, in a cinema sort of way, and that that that's really impressive. Awesome. Uh, the princess. I'll let you go first. Okay. Uh, C minus. This this is a it was a big old piece of crap. I was not interested. Mm. Was not thrilled. Uh, I think Joey King is doing something really cool here, but uh, nobody else is. 
All right. Uh, I'm giving it a C plus. I think it's a lot of fun. Oh. I think it understands how fight movies work. I think the fight choreography is excellent. Uh, I think it knows how to uh, vary that material up so that it's satisfying to fight film enthusiasts. And I agree. Joey King is really pulling her weight here. And I think this is an excellent sort of... Um, uh, this is this is a this is a signal basically just saying that she's ready for different stuff and that she yeah, can kill yeah. it and she can absolutely not be pigeonholed and she knows what to do here. The movie is a lot of fun. It's a little unambitious, but it it meets all its goals very very well. And I would recommend it to any action movie enthusiast. Uh, let's see here, Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Oh, as I said, this is one of my favorite movies this year. It is so just so so sweet and so innocent and so gentle. Mm. Uh, that it's, it's going to be hard not to sort of be wrapped up in this movie like a, a comforting blanket and, and mm. just enjoy this this innocent little child that is actually a shell. Aww. All right. And uh, last but not least, Minions, The Rise of Gru. Uh, it, it's it's kind of a nothing movie. There's not a lot going on with Minions, but there's it's not doing anything wrong. So I'll give it a C. Hmm. I'm gonna give it a C minus because I, I honestly I just feel like it's entirely disposable okay. in a way that's kind that's, of frustrating. That's like fair, I, I, that's fair. I, I it, it doesn't it, it it doesn't have the big laughs I got from the previous Minions movie, which was a little forgettable. But I had a really good time while I was watching it. Mm. Here I was just kind of waiting for it to hit hit high gear, and it never does. So while it's definitely not the worst movie I've ever given a C minus to. I, I see no reason to particularly recommend it. So okay. there you go. That's it. Yeah. Anyway, I'm fighting off a sneeze. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to get to the end of the podcast. Dang it. <laughs> okay. Well, we're almost at the end here. Thank you everybody for listening to critically acclaimed. Thank you for joining us. Sorry. This episode was delayed. We'll be back next week with reviews of stuff like Thor love and thunder and other things as well. well there's, a, there's a new uh, Claire Denis next week as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah. There you go. Good. Boom. Done. Ha ha. We win. Uh, so that's coming next week. Uh, we've got uh, other podcasts here as well. We've got our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. If you want a whole bunch of other exclusive shows, including our Star Trek show, all our yesterdays, we're just about to start uh, reviewing season three of Star Trek The Next Generation. We're doing every episode in order. Uh, we've got podcasts dedicated to every single film ever nominated for Best Picture and Best International Feature. We've got commentary tracks, a whole lot of stuff. Thank you to every one of our patrons. We wouldn't be here without you. We're incredibly grateful to you. If you'd like to discuss anything in any of this podcast or anything else that's on your mind, mm. feel free to email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. box yeah, send us an actual for people who like it the old-fashioned way? Yeah, send us an actual physical letter. Uh, send it to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Me. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's about that. We're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. Matt Seibel. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?
Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.